Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear five Muslim American poets discussing the cultural and religious issues that inform their work. The poets are Raza Ali Hassan, Ibtisam Barakat, Fadi Judah, Kazim Ali, and Khaled Matawa. They were speaking at Northwestern University as part of a day-long conference organized by Paul Breslin of the Northwestern English Department. Raza Ali Hassan was born in Bangladesh and grew up in Pakistan. For my second book, I used Tom Paulin and tried to imitate Tom Paulin. He's a British poet. Hassan is the author of two books of poetry and currently teaches at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Ibtisam Barakat was born near Jerusalem. When I read that, I would think this is a very friendly, female-friendly God who chooses that. I mean, I feel like I really like Islam. In her memoir, Tasting the Sky, A Palestinian Childhood, Barakat tells the story of her family fleeing their home in 1967 during the Six-Day War. She moved to New York in 1986 and later earned a master's degree in journalism at the University of Missouri-Columbia. Fadi Judah. It is, it is a way of engaging language in, in its construction really more than particularly um, seeking a definitive... Judah is a poet, poetry translator, and the son of Palestinian parents who immigrated to the United States after the creation of Israel. He won the Yale Series of Younger Poets Award in 2007 with his first book, The Earth in the Attic. Judah has also published translations of poems by Mahmoud Darwish, he lives in Houston, where he is an emergency room physician and an active member of Doctors Without Borders. Kazim Ali is the author of two books of poetry and three books of prose. Another story that has, has haunted me is the story of Hagar being abandoned in the desert and how she, decide, she decides um, to run. Ali was born in the United Kingdom to Muslim parents of Indian descent. His poems explore faith and daily life. Khaled Matawa is the author of four books of poetry and has translated eight books of contemporary Arabic poetry. The language that makes things happen is usually brief and devastating, like shoot them. Matawa was born in Libya and came to the United States in his teens. He teaches at the University of Michigan. Paul Breslin served as moderator for the discussion. He is the author of several books of poetry and literary criticism and is a professor of English at Northwestern University. The title of the symposium was The Muslim American Poet as Self and Other. It took place on October 26, 2009. Here's Paul Breslin with the opening question. First of all, I want to ask everyone, what poets or writers generally have made the most powerful impression on you, whether as possible models for your own writing or as examples of poetic or, should we say, literary vocation? So anyone who'd like to jump in on that? Uh, I guess I'll start. This is Kazim Ali. I found myself um, really attracted to um, certain poets, writers, um, visual artists, dancers, painters, musicians. And what was really interesting to me is after I really got into their artwork and after I really started to appreciate their writing or their painting or their music, or their performance, I came to learn that they were all artists who had had religious conversions <laughs> at some point in their lives. And it was really interesting to me. And it was like, it was almost like 
and then it started happening in a cascade, you know, and I would know that I had that pattern. And then this new artist I was interested in, I would discover that person also. So um, two of the poets, three of the poets that have mean the, meant the most to me as a writer, American poets, are Fanny Howe, Donald Ravel, and Jean Valentine. And all three of them are converts. Um, actually, I couldn't say if Donald Ravel is a Catholic or not, but, um, but, uh, but is a Christian. And Fanny Howe and Jean Valentine were both converts to Catholicism in their adult life. Um, the musician Alice Coltrane means a great deal for, to me, um, and she was a devotee of Swami Satchidananda, the so-called Woodstock Swami. Um, uh, Kazuo Ono, Agnes Martin, uh, and Makoto Fujimura are three uh, uh, other uh, artists who are all, were all Christian, uh, Christian converts late in their life. And then also another artist and writer who's meant a great deal to me is Yoko Ono, who I don't think is like formally religiously affiliated, but is extremely, like a lot of her writings and thought is rooted in Zen Buddhism. So I found myself attracted um, to all of these writers and artists, but from various religious traditions, but not necessarily my own. Um, although another writer who was raised Muslim um, and, and wrestled with his um, religious convictions the same way that I did uh, is called uh, Agha Shahid Ali, who is a wonderful um, poet um, who created some of the most beautiful poems in English, I think. And so he's always, um, he's kind of like an anchor of a model for me. He's, the, he's like the mo model for me in that I emulate him and fight him and all at the same time, sometimes, at, sometimes simultaneously emulate him and fight him. Mm -hmm. Would anyone else like to have a go at that question? I'll go. Okay. Well, my relationship uh, with poetry is probably like most of us here on the panel because we're immigrants, right? If, um, well, probably you're not, but it's just that uh, there was more immigrant to some degree. But like I had my schooling uh, in uh, another country in Palestine, and in high school, uh, we were um, required to memorize like huge numbers, huge lines of poetry, like whole poems, um, and. Uh, 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 like recite them or to be tested on them and answer questions about them and analyze them. That was part of the requirement of uh, literature and Arabic and part of the, also the culture. We used to spar with poetry, like you start a line and then I finish it and then I start another line and finish it for hours. Like that was, you know, like an afternoon begins and then it ends late at night with people and then we'll be like done and they'll, next uh, morning people pick up, they'll just throw a line of poetry at you and then you pull out another line that uh, begins with the same uh, letter or ends with the same letter or has the same rhyme. <laughs> Uh, from any poem. I mean, it's just amazing. So um, that uh, affected me greatly. So there's, of course, uh, we have the Sha'ra al-Jahliyin, like the Ma'laqat. These are like 10 uh, poems by the Jahli poets. And they're like very, very long poems. And they used to be hung around, um, they're called Ma'laqat because um, they um, used to be hung on the walls of Al-Kaaba where like now people go for pilgrimage. But uh, during the ancient times, they're like, um, they used to have something called Ashur al-Hurum, where like three months of the year, uh, where there's no fighting between the tribes, and people sparred in poetry and did business and all sorts of things. And then these, mm. these poems uh, were part of uh, the scene. So it happened a long time ago, but it happened also in my lifetime, and it will continue to happen in the Arab world. These people affected me greatly. The Mutanabbi, there isn't an Arab who loves poetry or hates poetry hasn't been affected by Al-Mutanabbi because he is a poet of, he knows the Arabic language better, any, better than anyone. And also he's a, a poet of uh, wisdom, 
where people will recite his uh, wisdom as proverbs without even knowing it's Al-Mutanabbi. The man is a genius of all times. He affected me, of course, and affected uh, all Arabs. So that's like Anizar Kabbani. He's a, um, affected me in both ways because he's uh, supposedly like the poet of... Uh, who loves women, or like he writes, you know, constantly talking about women, how much he loves them, and he doesn't. He thinks he does. <laughs> I mean, sexist stuff, I mean, like, to the core. But the man is like um, a master of the Arabic language. He just revolutionized uh, poetry like, from the long and heavy poem to light, and you can sing all of his poems. And I loved that language uh, of his, though I didn't like the content at all. I mean, in all of his poems, I mean, in every poem, like, Chests are mentioned three times, that kind of uh, uh, sexism. So, and of course, Mahmoud Darwish, which um, Fadi would like speak more more eloquently than anyone uh, on this panel about Mahmoud Darwish. Uh, he was born, and his poetry was born before us, and we really grew up eating zatar and zayt and hearing Mahmoud Darwish's poetry. So it's just uh, our lives. Now, when I came to America, uh, some of the people who affected me for sure Neruda, uh, he's not American, but like Neruda is uh, part of my consciousness. American Allah. in the wider sense. Yes, yeah. he's, <laughs> everybody's American in the wider sense. Yeah. And God bless that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, everybody's Palestinian, if you think about it, it's the Holy Land and we're all going there. So, this is Neruda, and then Dickinson, Emily Dickinson. Just the shortness of her poems affected me greatly. I knew that I love a short poem. Uh, from Emily Dickinson's uh, poems and her grappling with, um, you know, spirituality, also with um, uh, issues of sexism and uh, the doubt that so many women uh, go through. But then the the the, the brilliance with which um, uh, she uh, expressed and and Lao Tzu, you know, from the Asian tradition. I I love that spirituality. I really just. Um, it, it elevates my consciousness, and it's real poetry. I mean, the thinking as well as the expression. So. Others? I can go. Um, Shakespeare. Uh, this is Raza Ali Hassan. And then uh, <laughs> it's Philip Larkin. When I first started, uh, I had just read uh, Milos, who I don't like anymore, but I read uh, <laughs> for political reasons. Uh, but his poem... Uh, um, an encounter where he does it in six lines or maybe seven mm -hmm. lines, uh, the whole human condition. So I'm like, wow, you can actually finish. And so I don't ever have to do fiction anymore. And I can just, <laughs> so I could never finish a short story even. Uh, and then uh, later on, Seamus Haney and Derek Walcott. And then Haney, not, not uh, anymore. I don't really like him that much anymore. But Derek <laughs> Walcott is still my number one. It's not because I'm trying to, yeah, kiss up to Paul Breslin here, <laughs> but yeah, Derek Walcott, especially all that stuff. And then uh, for my second book, I used Tom Paulin and uh, tried to imitate Tom Paulin. He's a British poet. Nobody reads him here. And then Derek Hines, uh, his translation of Gilgamesh, mm. oh, yeah. which has stuff like paparazzis and. Uh, the scene in the Lebanon forest is based on uh, World War One poetry. Mm. So, and then I usually try to avoid reading poetry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another question, again large. What aspects of Islam most engage your creative imagination? This is a question that could be answered 
things that engage you positively, things that provoke you, things that make you feel both ways at once, whatever. So I can go real quickly. Okay. Yeah, one sentence. Ah, I only engaged with Islam for my second book because I was engaging with Iqbal, who was a Islamic poet. Mm-hmm. So I don't. So that's how I got involved with all the Islamic symbolism and all mm-hmm. that. So okay. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise no. I usually, yeah, it's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, mm. but, you but yeah, I mean, your understanding of Iqbal is not some. No, I have like I have foundness for. Mm. For, for but the you culture. reference Averroes, Alhazen. I mean, these are this is not they're not part of the mm. uh, you know you know they're not part of the Quran, but they're you know they're part of the Islamic culture. So yeah. if you take Islam as as religion, then I'm not interested. Uh-huh. Part of culture, yes, because it's that's who I am. I'm from the Islamic world, mm-hmm. and so so mm. I, I I don't mm. I don't want to say that that's part of. Islam per mm. se, but I, I don't know where the the line is. Uh, sometimes we value mm-hmm. well, we value those people. Mm-hmm. Th- those are our guys mm-hmm. or our boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like for instance, hey, it's Newton or mm-hmm. Copernicus, and for us, it will be uh, you know yeah. Alhazen or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. So. Want to answer this question? <laughs> um, Fadi uh, Judah. Um, I, I think, Paul, uh, you said uh, earlier in the day um, how, whether we are secular or not, it, it, we reference uh, biblical Old Testament, New Testament, and so forth. And so, um, for me, the, the idea of, of asking uh, such a question, uh, sort of, uh, I have a problem always with, with the these kinds of questions because I sort of focus on the construction of the question and not necessarily mm-hmm. on the that I have to make an answer for mm-hmm. it. And so um, what aspects of Islam most engage your creative imagination for me would uh, mean that I have basically um, in being Muslim and having grown up that way that I have engaged a culture with its own rich references of for mythology and for language and mm-hmm. for for creating myth and proverb and so forth and so it is it is a way of engaging language and in, in its construction really more than particularly um, seeking a definitive spirituality that is mm-hmm. particular to this uh, and not to that um, uh-huh. yeah. let me just say one word it's, it's a parallel living civilization I mean, that's that's what it is and we can we can take resources from both since we live in Mm. It's still going, the Islamic civilization, or at least that part of the world. You don't like Mm -hmm. that, do you? Oh no, I like that. I'm from (laughs) there. I think Kazim would like to get in. Um, For me, I do. I do think a lot about. um, I mean, I was. I was. Raised, it, I, I, you mentioned earlier, raised in the East but in the West. So mm-hmm. um, my family immigrated here when I was quite young. And so I think um, in comparison to many of my, even my family members who stayed um, in the Muslim world, we had an upbringing here much more conservative and traditional um, to, to them in many ways. And so, uh, and I had to grow, I had to grow away from that. and. Um, it took me some distance to then be able to go back into it and find um, those aspects of the mythology and those aspects of the tradition that really captivated me. One of the things that I grappled with over the course of my first two books really was um, the relationship of uh, 
uh, Abraham and his two sons and the story of the sacrifice. And they're not the same, uh, uh, they're not the same story at all uh, in, in terms of, um, you think it's just that in the Muslim story we substitute Ishmael for Isaac, but there are different stories. Um, Isaac does not know what his father intends in the thicket. And he, his, um, the, at the critical moment of the story when Abraham takes up the knife is, is a moment of betrayal um, and shock. On, on, on the part of Isaac, whereas Ismail knows what his father intends, and his father tells him everything before they go up there, and Ismail says to his father, do as you are commanded, you will find me among the faithful. And so the, 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 it's two totally different stories, and so I don't actually think that, that um, you have to choose one or the other, I think it's a progression of a story. Another story that has has haunted me is the story of Hagar being abandoned in the desert mm -hmm. and how she, deci she decides um, to run. She panics at the end when the, the boy is dying. She runs to look for water and he kicks in his heels against the ground and the water um, comes up from the ground to nourish him. And she's so panicked that she runs by him five or six more times and doesn't even notice that that's happening. And so I think it's like um, there's a misogynist reading of that story of Hagar as the hysterical woman who doesn't, is illogical and doesn't think straight. But I think there's something more deeply profound in that story about the nature of spirituality and the nature of prayer and what people think they want from God and what they really get and what it's all about. So I think that I've been, I've been thinking about that story for about four or five years, and mm -hmm. I still couldn't explain it to you. It's just it's like a, uh, like a Zen koan or something that. Um, floats in the back of my mind. I barely understand it. And there's just a million things in Islam that I think about like that. Like we are all worshipping in the direction of the Kaaba, but that building itself is just empty inside. There's nothing in it. Mm -hmm. there's, there is an object in the middle of that mosque. There is something that's there. There's two things that are there, not including that structure, which is empty. There's this black stone, this meteor that fell out of the sky, which everyone touches. But there's one other thing there. Do you know what it is? It's the tomb of Hagar. It's right next to the building, but it's so close to the building that in most of the pictures, it's from the other side, so you don't see it. So that's what we're all worshiping towards, really. Yeah, uh, this is Ifti Sam. I guess I don't have to because I'm the only woman on the panel, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't well. have to say my name. Okay, let's see. So I'm thinking about um, Islam as a woman. Uh, there are like at least three things that come to mind immediately. First is uh, the difficulty with uh, being a Muslim woman because, in my opinion, Islam has... Uh, uh, as well as uh, Judaism and Christianity, but Islam in particular, because I know it, uh, has been turned to be a very, very oppressive uh, condition for women in general. I mean, uh, anyone who tells you no is uh, is not reading or is not discussing or is afraid of, of uh, that definition of God that's offered, uh, being offered to people that if you question anything, then you go to hell and, and all of that. So there's a uh, a ceiling of fear, really, that is put on Muslim women and men in general to not question anything. And also we have the, I mean, sadly, we have the, the situation that if, you, if you're a Muslim and then you no longer want to be a Muslim, then, you know, some people think that they can kill you. That is just part of our struggle with our, our faith or how uh, our faith was interpreted or like got institutionalized and, you know, put in a structure that um, uh, keeps us afraid. Now, having said that, this, these are things that we all struggle with. Um, having said that, I feel really, I like Islam personally, but I feel that um, our culture, the Arab culture, or like that culture at that time, took that direction of spirituality and used it toward the benefit of the people who like, you know, were the, the structures, generally the men at that time, and it continues that way. And the, uh, when I read the Quran or like read Islam, I can interpret it in a very um, female uh, friendly way, and it's not oppressive to me. 
really, if I just took the language, it's not oppressive to me, if I'm allowed to interpret it. But so far, we have not been allowed to interpret and write about it and discourse about it without the fear of um, being attacked or, um, you know, expelled or something like that. And we, I, I personally uh, uh, go for... Uh, reconciliation and gentleness I don't want to get out and like punch people like culturally in the face and say you're wrong I want to engage my creativity and find a way where I don't lose my people and and continue the fabric of the culture without ripping it but like you know starting a new thread somehow and I feel like as artists and as writers we can we do have that creativity just because we haven't engaged it yet to speak in a way that we could be heard it doesn't mean it's not there I mean, so that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to have a fight and, you know, be right about it as a woman. I'm looking for a way where, like, we can lead one another to a place out of this um, uh, stuckness and, and continue what's really wonderful about this faith and this culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, not reform. I mean, it's like form. Reform uh, relies on form, and I really i am interested in the content. So that's uh, one thing. The other thing, uh, of course, you know, the story of Hagar and Sarah comes to me very powerfully, not just because of, of that. And by the way, when people go to Al-Hajj, they go around like a, a several times, just like she was doing um, to get, you know, looking for water for her son. Every Muslim, when they go to the Hajj, they will have to uh, do that uh, movement like that hysterical mm. uh, woman. <laughs> yeah, but then uh, the importance of this uh, story for me as a Palestinian is that Hagar, like in a biblical tradition, is like the mother of the Arabs, the ones who went to the desert, and she was banished from the house of Abraham and Sarah, the monarch. You know, after she wanted to have a child, as you probably know, she wanted to have a child. She couldn't have a child. She was 19 trying to have a child. Of course, you know. I mean, I understand the difficulty there. Uh, <laughs> she was trying uh, to do that. And then when the, uh, she, she couldn't, she didn't believe God that, you know, she will have a child. What they did is that they used this slave, Hagar, and, and, and who was very young, and then they had a child, and after that banished her. I mean, that's like uh, the violation of the sexual rights of a child, right? Or of a, a slave. Mm. So, like, mm -hmm. slavery in the Bible is acceptable, and it's made divine. Everybody ag agrees to it, that this is a divine story. These are the people who inspire us. But, but we, we don't like slavery, and we acknowledge it's a terrible thing, except when it becomes divine, you know, in this circumstance. So, like, th this is a portion of the story, and then when they throw her out... When I read that story, and many Jewish women actually are able to see that when I discourse with them, it's like the Jewish family throwing out the Arabs or the Palestinians, and we are continue, continue, we are, that continues. We're not able to go back home, we're not go, uh, are allowed to go into the house of Abraham, into the family. So it really takes on like a, I mean, right now um, connotations for me. Hagar needs to go back to the house because it's her house, right? And he's, uh, Abraham is our father, just as much as he's the father of anyone, and we are a family. I mean, that has to be really grasped on that divine, uh, spiritual level. And the third thing is language, of course, you know. That language, for instance, I mean, I, I just meditate on the words. God has, in Islam, has like 99 names, right? Mm -hmm. Like 99, I mean, there's like a, some of them are scary names. Yeah, they're like a Takabur. Yeah, like the arrogant. Uh, or like the strong. So you take you know, the human qualities and uh, amplify it to um, godly uh, levels, and then you get the names of God. Th that's fine. That's what we did, and, or that's what God did. It's fine with me. But God chooses, God chooses in the Quran to identify his or her or God's name as a Rahman, a Rahim. Ar-Rahman is like the, the compassionate, and then Ar-Rahim, the merciful. Both of them are like a very similar, like 
you know, very, very close. Uh, and the root of both names that God chooses to open up all of the verses of the Quran with is the same, which is Ra-Ha-Mim. Ra-Ha-Mim, like because all of the words in Arabic have roots, three uh, letter roots. And it means literally the womb of a woman, Rahm. The compassionate place where, where the, the creation occurs, which is inside a woman's body. When I read that, I mean, God chooses these two, not just Rahman, Rahman and Rahim. Every Muslim says that when they open up uh, to read the Quran or to speak about it. And that's a, the same word for the one part of the body, truly, like the major part that identifies a woman where creation occurs in the most compassionate fashion. When I read that, I would think this is a very friendly, female-friendly God who chooses that. I mean, I feel like I really like Islam. It, I feel like it's, it's, it's good. Uh, but then, of course, uh, the man will read it and not notice it. And then we'll skip over that, and then we'll go to the, the other names of God. So really, the discourse has to be with the people. And the text itself, uh, I acknowledge it as divine. I don't know, you know, what the origin is. As divine, because it has these immense nuances. And it brings us to this uh, really uh, rich conversation. And besides, as a poet, I want for God to exist. And if God doesn't exist, I want God to exist. I would be upset if God doesn't exist. Like, I really want something, uh, the mystery to exist in something beyond than a big creator. Who's going to be my mentor if there is no God? And mm. I'm trying to create. Yeah. So, thank you. <laughs> um, you had mentioned thinking that artists and poets could have a role in thinking our way out of some of these violent dualisms and impasses. So one of my questions was how you do conceive of the relationship between the art of poetry and politics, power, or uh, social interaction in the world. Is it really true, as Auden said in his elegy for W.B. Yeats, that poetry makes nothing happen? And if it is true, what is it that poetry does instead that makes us value it? And if it isn't true, in what way does poetry make something happen? In what sense is, is this statement misleading or false? Maybe I'll, I'll give it a try. I don't have a really long answer, but I was thinking, it has bothered me for a long time that poetry makes nothing happen. This is Khaled. It bothered me for a long time the claim that poetry makes nothing happen. Uh, but I began to think about sort of language that makes things happen. And it occurred to me that the language that makes things happen is usually brief and devastating, like shoot them or fire. kill them, yeah. fire. <laughs> uh, that's language that makes things happen. Uh, and that's, uh, that's not the language that uh, I, I would want to sort of be very uh, tied to, um, you know, the resolutions and, um, you know, the, the, re the several resolutions uh, to invade Iraq or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, to, so that is, um, that's language that makes uh, something. So maybe it is mercy that, that poetry makes nothing happen. It, it Maybe it stops some things from happening. Maybe that's in some ways the force of poetry. There is poetry that, oh, you know, a lot of traditions have a, poetic traditions have a, uh, a poetry that calls on people to prepare to fight and the enemy and so on. We don't hear much of that poetry um, now. Not very of it, much of it survives. And so maybe the poetry that makes things happen, like uh, go ahead and and, and kill other people. Somehow that poetry hasn't, has a survival aspect, but the poetry that 
tried to make nothing happen <laughs> the poetry that um, tried to sort of live and contemplate uh, is, is sort of um, important um, so um, so but maybe what poetry does make happen is the um, I think uh, is the creation of a, a personal uh, space because it mm. immediately signals that you uh, can engage this poetry on your own. It necessitates that you do it on your own. If, if I were to tell anyone that the only way to interpret this poem is this way, it's almost like telling somebody to change their name. It's like it's very. I think it's a very offensive that we accept someone else's. Uh, that it's imposed that interpretation of a poem is imposed upon us, uh, because poetry then uh, is a space where we as individuals come in, where the self is sort of created. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is the space, uh, the thing that happens, and uh, that's, a, that's, an, that's an important place. And also, it is the, the place where that thing that we created through some poetry gets to be, uh, uh, you know, sort of, sort of disintegrates and another one is rebuilt. I mean, I have a lot of students in sometimes introduction to poetry, and the, the poetry that made something happen to them is the poetry of Shel Silverstein and people like that. And uh, what I hope is that uh, the, when they read other poems, that that self sort of like dissolves and another self is built. Uh, and so um, uh, there is a lot that's at the individual level uh, mm. that happens. It's very, I mean, there are very few. Mahmoud Darwish is an in- incident where, uh, number one, was when his recitation of a poem was uh, an event, a simultaneous event among the Palestinian people. But what did it, what did, what did it sort of make happen was not an, a kind of action, but a, but a national debate. Uh, so um, that's a good thing to happen uh, for poetry to do. Uh, but again, a lot of poetry doesn't do that, and I don't think we want... Um, uh, every poem to raise a national so debate. Not all poems have the same relationship to to events, or to events, politics, mm. power that yeah. some poems have. So that's my long yeah. answer to the question. It, if I may intervene for one moment, it reminds me of an argument that was, has sometimes been made that in any kind of totalitarian social space, there is a, a kind of denial of this, of any personal sphere that is not within reach of the controlling power, and that to defend that personal space to defend its right to exist can sometimes be a political act, even though it isn't aligned with a political program or ideology if, of any kind. If I if I may briefly relate that to to Islam, because that's mm. um, the, the the pre-Islamic poetry that uh, Ibtisam was talking about. This is Khalid again. Uh, was collected around the same time that the hadith of Muhammad were collected. The Quran. Mm-hmm was collected very, within 25 years or so of Muhammad's death, the Prophet Muhammad's death. And then the sayings of Muhammad took maybe 100 and 150 years to be collected, and I think continued collected beyond that. But it was the same time in which the pre-Islamic poetry, the, the poetry of Jahiliya or the poetry of ignorance, was collected. So what, what happened was uh, as soon as the... And, and by the way, the hadith, if you think of... Um, uh, where a lot of Sharia comes from, a lot of Sharia comes from the Quran, but a lot of it also comes from the Hadith. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of these sayings of Muhammad that, you know, codified law. The, the 
the law of stoning the, uh, the adulterer comes from a hadith. It does not come from the Quran. So in some ways, the Quran is perhaps a little more gentle than the hadith. It so comes as from the Old Testament. So. It comes from the <laughs> well, well, yeah. at least in the Islamic yeah. context. Well, one thing about that is that as, it seems like as, as more of the Islamic laws were being gathered, this space of pre-Islamic poetry was being collected, which is secular. I mean, the, the Muslims, Arabs before Islam were pagans, but you never hear of a god, hardly ever hear of the pagan gods in the... Uh, uh, in that in that poetry, so uh, it, as the law or the, the religion was being established, you had this secular humanistic space with its heroes and villains, by the way, uh, come into being. So, mm -hmm. in a sense, um, uh, maybe poetry was, to, in that sense, trying to create a, a, to slow down the thing that was about to happen, the, the sort of the codification mm -hmm. of, a, of a life. Uh, and then poetry moved into the court where it was another secular. So mm -hmm. in a sense, what poetry had kept in the Arabic language and the Islamic realm is a space for the humanistic, uh, mm -hmm. secular, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the uh, political in a, in a sort of a, a, uh, in a servitudinal way, if you say. But in a sense, mm -hmm. it's the space of the secular. And, yeah. and mm. Are there others yeah, who would like to... Yeah. There's something to be said also, Khalid, about the relationship uh, uh, of Islam to poetry, because in some way, um, the, is it a, a ayah or like, you know, in, in Islam, there is a, an attack on poets. It says like, well, uh, mm -hmm. it's like um, because uh, uh, Prophet Muhammad uh, came uh, to, you know, Quraysh and, and uh, the Arabian uh, Peninsula, as a prophet and challenged all of the poets, that tremendously established poet, challenged them to come up with something that is comparable to the Quran as a document of poetry. He proposed the Quran as the finest, the, the divine poetry. Mm -hmm. He didn't like offer it as a sharia that came later on, or like just as laws. He offered it as a poet, as a challenge. But then like later on, he became differentiated and they like th there was like the claim that he is not a poet, this is divine and the creator is the master poet, etc. And you know, the archangel is, is, um, is offering, inspiring him, giving him this poetry. But truly in the beginning, it was, you know, like a challenge of poetry. And then later on, the poets were sort of denounced. And that's why Arabic poetry kind of started to, uh, to diminish because like, we had all these poets praising uh, the rulers. That's what Mutanabi your favorite. That's how he mm. made his great poetry. Yeah, but so. he used mm. the language in like tremendously mm. brilliant. No, I, I, the poetry moved. Into, I mean, we're, ta we're talking history now, which, okay. but it, the poetry moved away. But I don't know if you can say it, it really diminished. Uh, mm. uh, I, mean, that's, I mean, I don't know, but it, it certainly was a different realm. Mm. But it, it changed. I, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, a stress yeah. of, of poetry, uh, it seems to me, is not uniquely Islamic. In our own country, Cotton Mather, whom you've heard of, wrote that the powers of darkness have a library amongst us of which the poets have always been the chief and most venomous authors. So, <laughs> so American Protestantism, too, was skeptical of poetry. You know, a lot of... Uh, religions that stress a kind of purism and that stress a kind of anti... So did Plato. Yeah, that, that suspicion of representation of intermediaries between the human and the divine of images of icons mm -hmm. uh, is, is there. Do you, do you want to say something? Yeah.
The next question came from the audience, from Dilip Gaonkar, the director of the Center for Global Culture and Communication at Northwestern University. He brought up the topic of human suffering and quoted a line from the social philosopher Adorno, after Auschwitz, it is barbaric to write poetry. He also asked what kind of art could contain this magnitude of suffering. Fadi Judah was the first to respond and referred to the familiar quote from W.H. Auden that poetry makes nothing happen. You know, I'd, I'd like to begin by saying the poetry makes nothing happen, and my memory fails me at the moment, is often taken a, a quote that is taken out of context. The rest of the line, if anybody in the audience remembers it, can refresh my memory, tells, tells, completes the story other than... It survives in the valley of its saying. It's, 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 yeah. yeah. It survives in the saying, I think. Or, I in the valley know. of its okay. saying. And... And so, it's the next line. Right, thank you. And, and so I think it's the same thing with the Adorno question. Um, and so, uh, again, I would like to uh, ask and say, why is there such an emphasis on that half quote from Auden that gets repeated over and over again? Which to me becomes actually a Western question, not necessarily a non-Western question. Um, and uh, if, if one is to be pure about these things, which one shouldn't. Um, and, and the same, same thing with Adorno, um, with Adorno's quotation, because one cannot just take that, uh, you know, and even one of the selected Adorno books, Can One Live After Auschwitz? And, um, mm -hmm. and there's an entirety to his work. Mm -hmm. um, so having said that, to your uh, answer, to answer your question, I think that um, uh, one, w w I hope that when, when I engage poetry that I am uh, always aware that um, the, the, the better poem is always ahead of me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's just a testimony to the relationship an, art, an artist has with his art medium uh, and also obviously with the space for the self. Um, um, I, I think that um, when I look at Darwish's poetry or Denise's poetry, um, what is most important to me is that it really gives a lot of people, a, 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 it adds to the meaningfulness of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Ali here, uh, Adorno changed his mind later on, and, and he actually said that that statement was, uh, it's a wrong question to ask. He, so he changed his mind on it, actually. Well, if yeah. I may add to, to that, yeah. um, I think uh, <laughs> That is uh, maybe our response to, to devastation in general. Uh, in, uh, and, I, and this is, uh, I'm reading about Palestinian history. Uh, there was a good deal of Palestinian history written before 1948. There was a famous Abdel Rahim Mahmoud poem. He meets the Saud, the Prince Saud, comes to uh, Jerusalem 1936. To visit uh, the the, uh, the Masjid al-Aqsa, or the where the Dome of the Rock is, or the distant mosque or the far mosque, uh, so the Prince Saud comes to visit, and Abdurrahim Mahmoud said, "Have you come to visit this mosque, or are you bidding it farewell?" Meaning, have the leadership of the Arabs come to check on us, or are they telling us your fate is sealed and we have nothing to offer you? and uh, the, the, the distant mosque is gone.
<coughs> and so there was a lot of poetry before. Uh, Abdurrahim Mahmoud, I think, died uh, in the revolt in 1936 or so. Maybe the visit was... So before his visit, he went and fought and he, the British killed him. But what happened after 1948, I mean, it's acknowledged that there was a period, maybe two years, when uh, the Palestinians, a lot of them just stopped writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what the 1948 is called in Palestinian is the, is the Nakba, which is yeah. the catastrophe. Yeah. And so um, Emily Dickinson says, after a great pain, a, suff- a, a formal, formal feeling, feeling comes. comes yes. And maybe after a great mm-hmm. pain, a, a, a great silence befalls. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's what uh, Adorno uh, had meant. And I, I'm glad he changed his mind. He, he did. Yeah. It's yeah. official. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of things about <laughs> even very smart people, you know, say silly I, stuff. <laughs> I'm reminded of Freud on mourning and melancholia. Mm-hmm. You know that that uh, one suffers a devastating loss, and in mourning one freezes. One has the Emily Dickinson feeling. And if one is resilient, one eventually works through the morning and is able to sing again. But one can be so devastated as to be trapped in melancholia and never work it through, never get past it. The other thing is that seems to me this goes way back in, in Jewish tradition, the psalm of Babylonian exile. Yeah. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange, you know, we hanged our harps in the willows. Mm-hmm. We can't sing after this has happened to us. So, I... I actually think uh, my experience with Doctors Without Borders uh, was, was for me uh, illuminating in many aspects. One of them is the idea that we actually, most of us, uh, know very little about suffering. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that um, there is a point, and I don't necessarily know what that point is, but there is a point uh, after which the classification of suffering becomes in itself a... Um, Brutality. Uh, a brutality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea of um, um, saying to the people in Angola that uh, your civil war, which led you to suffer um, villages being hijacked and women being subjected to rape, as uh, uh, I, you know, or what's happening in Congo or so forth, mm-hmm. that this somehow is not, um, is, is more comprehensible uh, than other kinds of suffering or other tragedies in human history is abhorrent. Um, and, uh, and so I think that this is where the commodification of suffering is a very risky uh, proposition, conscious or unconscious. Um, I think that when you say to people that you've just suffered ethnic cleansing, but not a genocide. Um, not, you know, and, and so, of course, saying that there's international law, which, you know, the reason for that, I've been told by some, for instance, regarding the Darfur issue, that, uh, well, in genocide, we would in- intervene, but in, in ethnic cleansing, we wouldn't. And, you know, or to say to the people in Iraq that they, the suffering and the entire destruction of a people's entire sense of life and being um, has reached these maximum levels of horror. Um, so to, to subject that to classification and then to subject poetry to that mm-hmm. uh, is, is, I think, abhorrent uh, or degrading, to say the least. 
Adorno, in his Minima Moralia, writes a, a section called a paragraph, which is not printed in some reprints of Minima Moralia, but it is in the one called Can One Live After Auschwitz? And he predicts, and he already, and this was obviously 1946, was after the UN Declaration of Human Rights and so forth, and he already talks about the conundrum of naming suffering and the problem that will arise from that. Um, and one of the, the ways he says, he's just called, he calls it um, uh, human monstrosities or atrocities. And there's, I think that there's, there's a point, I think, where, um, you know, I can understand if we're talking about the difference between the pain of a dislocated finger, uh, you know, to put it in physical terms, or the pain of a heart attack. But I, I think after which there is a point, we're not talking at these levels. I think it's sort of, you know, I can't go to, a, to a, someone and say, you just had a heart attack. The other guy had a stroke. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it works like that anymore. Yeah. But I really liked uh, that um, second part of your question about what uh, art uh, would contain this or would express, you know, I mean, not all um, art lends itself to uh, all kinds of expression uh, because we're talking about Palestine and, you know, like these um, tremendous, really unspeakable uh, destructions of human beings that human beings have inflicted, which is in itself really is, we haven't still figured out um, how we do that and then we are appalled by it. But like, we go on doing it and then we're appalled by it, right? I mean, that we still haven't really uh, evolved um, toward grasping ourselves an individual level as well as communities. And we point fingers at one another when like, you know, in all nations we have done uh, this sort of uh, genocidal behavior. Not like that everybody committed genocide, but that violence, um, I guess it's part of our social evolution to kind of transcend it and contain it and understand it. In all cultures, mm -hmm. we happen to be Palestinians as opposed to Jews, just happened. We, you know, we, it's, we happen to do that. But I wanted to um, say something, growing up in Palestine, uh, the censorship was immense. Like I couldn't wear my Palestinian flag at all without going to jail for six months. Uh, the newspapers could not mention the word olive or wheat or something like that in any uh, poems without like shutting down the newspaper. So the newspapers would come out, um, like the editors of the newspapers would leave out, like the censor would see the newspaper just like an hour before it's printed. So the editors would leave out uh, blanks you know, like for a word or a sentence or a passage to tell us that this has been censored. So what happened in our community as Palestinians, you know, growing up under occupation, we became highly symbolic. We started to speak code. And I resented poetry because of that. Every time I wanted to write poetry because it relies on symbolism mm -hmm. and images and stuff, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do the Oprah thing, right? Speak it out. That was the contradiction. <laughs> Yes, that was a contradiction for us, not the poetry, because poetry was made into an oppression for us. Mm -hmm. The symbolism was representing our lack of freedom. Mm -hmm. And then I had to come to America and regain my, train myself to be free and to love what I loved as an mm -hmm. Arab loving poetry and, and, and reclaim it. Of course, you know, I, I tried the poetry, but that my relationship has been really conflicted by the political thing. But I just want to say one more thing. I don't agree with Auden. He was having a hopeless bad moment. I mean, everybody has that. Uh, but the, as, as far as uh, whether poetry produces anything or affects anything, I feel that we as human beings, all of us, since the beginning of time until the end of time, we live on a continuum, continuum of more life, 
or less life. It goes into being animated and fully alive or death. And poetry and all arts in general, but poetry now we're speaking about it, gives me as a poet more feeling. I must feel before I write. And the more I feel, whether it's pain or love or anything, as long as I feel, as long as I'm not on Prozac or not numb or something like that, I'm alive, I'm closer to life. The less feeling I have and the less expression, I'm closer to death, whether I'm old or young. And poetry cultivates, it's like the thing that cultivates this field, this land, and makes you a flower, literally, because you're feeling. I mean, even thorns could come up, but still you are feeling. And that uh, brings you closer to life. That was Ibtisam Barakat, and this concludes the first part of the symposium featuring Muslim-American poets. The other poets were Raza Ali Hassan, Fadi Judah, Kazim Ali, and Khalid Matawa. They were speaking at Northwestern University on October 26, 2009. Paul Breslin organized the event and served as moderator. You can hear the rest of this discussion on the next Poetry Lectures podcast. The conference was sponsored by the Center for Global Culture and Communication, the Kaplan Institute for the Humanities, the Poetry Foundation, and the Northwestern University Department of English. The recording was provided by Chicago Public Radio's Chicago Amplified program. You can hear this and other events recorded by Chicago Amplified at wbez.org. At poetryfoundation.org, you'll find articles about poets and poetry, an online archive of more than 8,000 poems, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.